0: On today's show, a lot of heartburn over the proposed food tax increase. And the question, censure over impeachment? Representative Ben McAdams is on the censure train. Tune in Monday through Thursday, 9 to 11, for Dave and I'm Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. We help men deal with the life changes triggered by divorce, such as child custody and property division, among many others. But life changes also occur after divorce. These changes can make parts of your existing court order irrelevant or harder to follow. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. We're a partner men can count on. Contact Cordell, Cordell Cordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership. I'm Jess Larson. Today on the show, we've got Joe Mandisi.
1: And uh, our principals in news reporting and commentary and, and opinion and research and information that we publish is pretty old school it's you know we need to understand who our audience is what will help them drive a competitive advantage in their business and we apply that and that's those are pretty simple news values and they go back uh, to the origins of journalism
0: joe thanks for making time
1: well thank you for having me
0: so editor-in-chief at media post uh for people who don't know media post can you give us a quick background on it
1: Sure. Well, basically, Media Post is a traditional trade publication, but we publish primarily in digital through an Internet website and newsletters through email and mobile apps. And basically, our audience are people who buy and sell media, the people in the media industry. So it's advertisers and agencies who buy media to reach consumers, and it's publishers and technology companies who sell their media and their audience to advertisers to reach them. That's basically what we do. So we cover it like almost like a financial marketplace, the supply and demand, the commodities and equities of media. That's how we look at it.
0: So, you know, where you have, call it 150,000 people in your core audience, um, and there's obviously bigger publications out there as far as audience wise. Can you talk about the, the steering power of who your audience is and that, you know, how much these people on Madison Avenue spend every year?
1: Well, sure. I mean, one of the cool things about what we do is we cover media for the smartest people in media. They're literally the people who run it, buy it, sell it, program it, you know, create the technology for it. So it's a very focused audience. It's a trade publication, but they're, we're reaching the most influential people in the marketplace. Um, and the cool part of it is we get to talk about it in a very sophisticated way. We get to talk um, not in a jargony way, but we get to talk about media issues at a very high level. Um, sometimes we write things that resonate with the general marketplace and get lots of consumers, um, you know, unique users, etc. But you know, mainly we're focused on reaching the people who influence media.
0: And so, um, people who are coming to MediaPost.com, uh, they're, they're trying to make these decisions for literally trillions of dollars in spending in the advertising marketplace on an annual basis. Um, can you talk a little bit about, uh, you know, the, the subject of the show, innovation and leadership, when it comes to your world?
1: Well, absolutely. I mean, there's no more important time to be innovative and lead in advertising, media, and publishing than now, because there's so many options and so much at risk. You know, when I started coming out, started covering media early in the 1980s, there was a relatively finite supply of media that you could use to reach consumers. And in that environment, you know, you had network TV, some big newspapers, magazines, out of home, and some radio outlets. Um, Basically, the biggest brands could dominate because they bought their way into the consumer's attention. So it was pretty easy. I mean, you still had to plan and buy media and do research to make sure you stretched your budget as well as you could, because Ford was competing against Chrysler, which is competing against, you know, the imported cars. So there was still a lot of risk. But basically, if you had budget, you could buy attention and reach of consumers. But because media exploded, there's so many options and choices that today. And by the way, today someone's building something that will create even more choices tomorrow. It's a very hard game to dominate. You need to use ingenuity, innovation, and imagination to stay ahead of the curve. Because that new buzzy, shiny thing that you're talking about today might be the next Snapchat or whatever tomorrow. And um, I think basically that requires people to take risk in a way that they never did before. They have to make bets on investing in early stages of companies that could play out later. They have to um, make decisions to move money out of legacy companies and media that is a risk for them. But if they don't do that, they may not be here tomorrow.
0: Yeah. So thinking about this, you know, back earlier in your career, you know, ad week and then ad age and, and all these different experiences you've had in the industry, as you look forward, if you had advice for brands who are um, trying to figure out where to best use their dollars in this fractured marketplace, as you say, what, what's some of the, some of the guidance, some of the principles that people can use to be smarter about it?
1: Well, I really do feel for big established legacy brands and, and companies because it's theirs to lose and they built up so much equity over decades or you know some of them a hundred years or more um, but the marketplace has changed so much around them that it's difficult because it's easy for uh, there's no barrier to entry it's easy for a new company to come along and dislodge themselves by going direct to consumer through digital media that reach everybody and there is anybody can buy their way on Facebook or YouTube or Twitter or Google or Snapchat or whatever the next new thing is. So it's really hard for them. I'd say the most important thing is to A, understand the audience, B, understand who they are and what their product and service is, and then C, make sure they're meaningful to the consumer because the consumer has more choice now than they ever did before. They literally have more options than they ever did before. By my count, when I started covering advertising in the 1980s, there were about 200 national media brands Using network TV by the end of the 80s, thanks to cable and satellite and other technology, there were 4,000 brands buying national TV. Today, there are over 5 million brands in the world if you include Google and Facebook and companies like that. But at the same time, the number of ad impressions or messages being targeted to the consumer has grown exponentially as well. So back in the 70s, the average American consumer was exposed to maybe 500 brand impressions a day. Today, it's over 10,000. Um, so you have an increase in the number of brands and the number of messages they're putting out there. Um, so the hardest part is for any of those brands' messages to actually break through and be meaningful and resonate with a the consumer. There's a great series of research studies that have been done by one of the big global ad agency companies called Havas, and it's called the Meaningful Brand Study. And each year, Havas goes out and measures a global cross-section of consumers, and they ask them this fundamental question, which I think is the best question in the world to ask if you're a brand, which is, if this brand went away tomorrow, would it matter to you? Would you care? And what they found is on a global basis, 72% of brands could disappear tomorrow and the average consumer wouldn't care. In the United States, it's closer to 90%. The reason why it's so much higher in the U.S. is we have so many more brand options available to us. What it shows is that there's a a lot of discretion among the consumers in terms of which brands they engage with and which ones matter to them. I mean, the good news is if you're in that eight percent or twenty percent or thirty percent of brands that do matter with the consumer, it's like gold. you're in like you know in their inner circle, and uh, that's called brand equity. Uh, then again, it's easy for a new brand to come along tomorrow that can displace you or supplant you if they come along with a better way of doing what you do. So I'd say the most important thing is to understand who your consumer is and what makes you meaningful to them. After you do that, then the trick is trying to figure out how do you reach people and get that message out to them. And that is a challenge because it's such a hyper-fragmented world of media options. Um, You can do it with great creative still. I mean, we all see brilliant breakthrough creative on TV or viral type videos on the internet or just ingenious memes being done by brands through various social media but it's getting harder and harder to do because so many brands are using so many creative resources to do that at the same time so i think in the end it has to be really about what is the core underlying value proposition what makes you meaningful to that consumer and it's not always entertaining them or delighting them or making them laugh sometimes it's just being relevant and meaningful to their lives and that's not easy to do when there's so much choice out there
0: yeah no kidding um, so you guys give awards to the industry. Is there anybody that comes to mind of you've given awards to for their innovation and uh, maybe some of the principles you just talked about that uh, sure. you can share with us?
1: Well, absolutely. We, we actually give awards out each year to the the best advertisers, agencies, and media companies. And we have three simple criteria we use, which is the first is vision. Can this company or organization see the future and know how to get there? Right? Do they have a vision for it? The second is innovation. Do they do something that l- literally innovates the marketplace in some way and does it better? And the third thing is leadership. Do they do it in a way that is so good that other people actually follow them and maybe emulate or replicate what they're doing? Uh, the hard criteria to live up to, and not every year do we match all three of them, but you know, each year we do pick some interesting um, leaders. So in the past year, we're actually getting up to this year's awards process, but in the past year, we picked a couple of outliers. So one was um, we added a new category called Disruptor of the Year um, because it didn't really fit neatly into our classic definitions of brand or ad agency, and it was Russia's Internet Research Agency, and that would seem like uh, maybe not a sensible choice, but – Uh, We really think they hit all the criteria. You know, this is Russia's state-sponsored hacker group that uh, disrupted the 2016 presidential election because of using basically the tools of our own trade, social media. They spent very little media. They spent under a million dollars spreading disinformation. But they did it in such an effective and innovative way, they actually dislodged the uh, or at least seeded confusion in the uh, presidential campaign. And it was pretty amazing, brilliant. By the way, it's still going on. <laughs> These Russian active measures cont- continue to this day, and it's really hard to put out, as you've seen in recent weeks and months. you know, Google and Twitter and Facebook are all constantly trying to figure out ways to shut this down. And um, you know it's, hacking is a, is a pretty obvious way to innovate because you're figuring out how to game technology to get a competitive advantage. But I think it is something we see as a constant theme on Madison Avenue where somebody figures out how to tweak a competitive edge with technology and just get a little bit better than someone else. The other big pick we made last year was to to that ad agency I mentioned, Havas, specifically the media group, because what they did is they took the first steps towards applying that research I, I referred to you about being meaningful, but in a new way. Havas, I think, is a leader in this new Approach to consumer marketing, which is to actually let consumers have control over their own advertising and messaging and um, whether they even opt into it or spend time with that brand. They're in the early stages of it. Uh, I would encourage you to go on mediapost.com and read the brief that we wrote up on our uh, Media Agency of the Year awards. But basically, what they did is they started the process of figuring out how do you let a consumer turn off and on their own advertising, their own messaging and why they would engage with a brand or not. Now, that's a pretty innovative way for brands or agencies to think, because in the past, it was all about how do we conquest you or win you or how do we buy media to hijack or ambush your attention. But I think Havas is understanding that in this world, you have to be respectful of the consumer. I might add some of the accounts that they represent are very sensitive um, consumer categories. They tend to deal, this group, in uh, pharmaceutical and health products. So they understand that consumers in those categories are very sensitive to the messages they receive, you know, it might involve their own health or well-being, and that what they really want is for the consumer to reach out and embrace the brand versus the other way around. So I think that's a pretty innovative uh, way of approaching the marketplace. Whether it's successful or not, we'll see in the next few years. You don't necessarily have to achieve these goals to meet our criteria. You just have to have a good rationale for going out and pursuing them.
0: Interesting. So um, thinking about applying it to your own business, right? Your, these people are obviously, uh, your your audience is extremely media savvy. They are the media. Um, how do you apply these lessons at Media Post?
1: Mm. You know, it, it's a great question. You know, keep in mind, I'm just the editor. So I'm mainly responsible for the content and uh, our principles in news reporting and commentary and, and opinion and research and information that we publish is pretty old school. It's, you know, we need to understand who our audience is, what will help them drive a competitive advantage in their business, and we apply that. And that's, those are pretty simple news values, and they go back uh, to the origins of journalism, uh, which is um, people need information to remain competitive and prepared in life, particularly in business. And if you give them the right information and you keep delivering it over time, they'll keep reading you. Um, So I will say we try and use a news value called consequence, because in business, well, in all walks of life, consequence is probably the most important news value any human being could have, right? So consequence is when something's at risk. And if you don't get this information and you don't listen to it or follow it or apply it, you could risk something. You could risk your life. You could risk your votes in the election. You could risk your commerce as a company, So for our audience, since they're mainly people who are trying to make money by buying or selling media, um, we talk to them about what's at stake. Every story we do should try and explain to them um, why if you don't read the story, you might not be at a competitive advantage or you might be at a disadvantage. And you do that in the headline and the way you write the story. But the most important thing is to flag that information up high and tell somebody why you should even spend time reading this story. Remember what I said earlier, you have an infinite amount of choice today. There's so many media options. So just like a trade publication competing with all these other publications, we have to tell our reader first and foremost why we matter to them, why we're meaningful to them. Um, the second part of what we're doing uh, goes into the broader parts of media Post as a publishing company. And... Um, I will say because we were so old school and uh, traditional in the way we thought about publishing, we resisted a pretty important shift in the way journalists uh, make money. And uh, we're still a little ambivalent about it, frankly. But it's this concept of native advertising or advertising that doesn't fully disclose or represent itself as an ad. Content that's blended with the brand or the advertiser's message. I'm still pretty ambivalent about that. Uh, By the way, there are laws in this country. The Federal Trade Commission Act requires full disclosure of a paid sponsorship of media. Um, But that being said, every major publisher of news content does some form of native advertising today. The New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, they all do it. And in our trade, our rival trade publications were all innovative and leaders in that space. And we resisted it. We're now at the stage of doing some new things in that area. I can't fully talk about them because we think they are truly innovative and different. And we're just coming to market with them now. But the ones that will be much more transparent, not trying to mislead our readers, but explain to them why they should actually read this brand's content versus our editorial content, but in a very fully disclosed way. And um, so I will say we're constantly facing challenges um, some years ago, I gave um, a presentation at a journalism school at a university, and the title of the presentation was How to Cover an Industrial Revolution When the Industry You're Covering Happens to Be the One You Work in, Journalism or Publishing. And it's um, it's pretty challenging to watch journalism and publishing models implode while you're in a trade publication covering them because it's also impacting your ability to do business. For the past Five or six years, we've done a partnership with the Wharton uh, School of Business and Bob Garfield, the um, media journalist who also does On the Media and NPR. And um, it's called the Media Futures Summit. And funny enough, I can't talk about it because the summits have been completely off the record. It's been very frustrating for me as a journalist to attend them because I can't write about them. But what we discuss at these conferences with the biggest players in journalism, publishing and media technology is how to develop new business models that will support and underwrite journalism Uh, because the old ones, advertising, subscription models, aren't doing as well as they did, mainly because of what I explained earlier, that there's so much choice and option out there that journalism has been seen as commoditized by a lot of consumers. They don't want to pay for it. And Coincidentally, advertisers don't have the same regard or need for it. Um, So what replaces those revenue models? Um, I can't talk specifically about the use cases we've explored there, but I will say they run the gamut. We have cases where publishers are exploring selling their data, you know, literally their data about the consumers that they have um, that they reach through their publishing models. Now, that's not that different because in the old days, magazines and newspapers always used their circulation reports to tell advertisers why their audiences were important and valuable to them. But this is going a step upstream. It's literally identifying users and being able to target them with messages, ads, and commerce models. Another model is an altruism model where you know you convince consumers or sponsors to pay for you because it's a public good. Um, There have been something like 20 or 30 different business models explored in these discussions, and I don't think any of them have become the magic bullet yet. But I will say, stepping back, one of the most interesting and ironically frustrating parts of covering media over the past several decades is being part of an industrial revolution that's actually hurting the ability of journalism as a business model.
0: It's interesting, the rate of change, huh? Uh,
1: Yeah, it's it's accelerating. I mean, that's the other part here. Because of the principles of Moore's Law, because all media's technology, whether it was print, you know, it was Gutenberg coming up with the printing press that enabled mass distribution of printed materials, um, whether it was Marconi using a radio transmitter to distribute across airwaves, all of them were just innovations of technology, right? So the early internet was pretty brilliant with um, Tim Berners-Lee's vision for distributing packets of content over um, a distributed internet network or now through mobile internet infrastructures. They're all just technology. But the core difference of the technology since the internet boom has been uh, micro—sorry, uh, data processing, right? And the speed with which microprocessing and data processing happens, you know, microchips and the technologies that relay it, as they accelerate, it creates more bandwidth, more capacity and speed of distribution. And so within that, people who understand how to engineer that technology to create new experiences have a competitive advantage. And if you think about it, the most brilliant case of that was the creation of the applications marketplace. Now, apps always existed, but you only had big infrastructure companies like Google and I'm sorry, not Google, Microsoft and um, who would engineer operating systems right, or Apple. But interestingly, when Apple created the iPhone, um, this Russian hacker, whose name I can't recall or pronounce, um, created this thing called the launch code and hacked the iPhone. And it enabled third party developers to create new applications that would sit on top of this phone and run processes that Apple never envisioned. Right. And for the first year, Apple tried to cease and desist and stop this from happening. Right. But at some point, I think they realized they couldn't. And then they created the App Store, and it's become one of the biggest cash cows. There's millions of apps on the App Store, and Apple makes money from all of them. It's a brilliant thing. But the most important part of it was it created an opportunity or a platform for innovation. People could now program using the simple digital technology any experience they want. So you could create games or weather apps or utilities or quantified self-apps it's endless. But again, going back to those principles of hyperfragmentation of media, what it did is it created a hyperfragmentation of applications. So the problem with the app store is, you know, of the millions of apps on there, only 99% of them are hardly ever used. Only 1% of them are used on a regular basis. Only about 1% of them actually make money. But it doesn't stop innovation. And tomorrow, somebody can create an app that will become you know, the new social network or the new quantified self or the new whatever app, right? And that's pretty amazing. So going back to speed of change, the biggest difference now is that going back to the principles of Moore's law, uh, microprocessing power like doubles every year or so and the cost of doing it goes down. And that creates the opportunity for people to create new and unintended processes and applications that, I mean, if you think about Uber and Airbnb, They took a pretty simple infrastructure, but they created a new business model of a distributed labor force, basically, or uh, in the case of Airbnb, uh, an untapped rental or hotel marketplace. And all it was was creating a mobile application that integrated the user's credit card, their identity for security, and um, the ability to search and choose among options of places to stay. And they created a fabulous business around it. And that displaced a lot of rental, hotel, and other markets, timeshares that, you know, had competed with them before. So speed of change will continue to accelerate um, and will continue to displace and disrupt established markets.
0: Well, it's something for all of us to keep in mind as we're planning out the futures of our organizations and, and probably, you know, working on inventing our own future Um, I think this is a great place to stop for part one of the episode. Please tune in and catch uh, the second part of our interview. Uh, Thanks so much for listening. Well, that's it for the episode. One other thing I wanted to tell you about. If you'll remember the guys from Convoy uh, in episodes back, Ken Free and Trent Mano, I went on one of their CEO trips to New York and I met a guy named Brent Thompson, very successful entrepreneur. He was former CEO of Jive Communications, big uh, company now, I think three or $400 million. Anyways, he uh, he started a new company called blipbillboards.com. I'm super stoked they're a sponsor now. But I, I remember a year and some ago when I met him, I thought it was genius. Instead of having to buy six months or a year's worth of billboard um, for thousands of dollars, you can buy eight seconds at a time for like 10 or 20 cents. You pick what billboard you want it on, what time of day you want it to run. And it just puts so much power in the hands of, of marketers and CEOs who want to try something and see if it works. You can buy as many or as few as you want, change it as many times as you want. Uh, I think now our podcast is being advertised on billboards in like 18 different states because we have these guys as sponsors. We're pretty excited about it. Hope you check out blipbillboards.com. Thanks. Hi, welcome to the Subway ad for 299 subs. How would you like it? Uh, I'll take Drill Sergeant, please. You got it. (laughs) All right, now listen up. I want each and every one of you to drop and give me a six-inch meatball marinara, cold-cut combo, veggie delight, or black forest ham on your choice of bread with any veggies you want for just $2.99 each. Turn yes, sir. Make it what you
1: want at participating restaurants. Additional charge for extras plus applicable tax. No additional discounts or coupons may be applied.